welcome to the Hell Project podcast. This is where I share all of the results of the research and reading that I've done on the doctrine of hell over the last few years. Uh, I defend the view that uh, without Jesus, we are all dead. Uh, This is the view called conditionalism, and I believe there's better news in it than the traditional understanding of hell. And I try to defend that here. The audio quality may not be that high as it's taken off my YouTube channel and unfortunately some of the streams do have technical glitches but I hope that you stick with it and uh, do let me know what you think, share, uh, get involved through Twitter or even comment on my YouTube channel. I look forward to hearing back from you. Enjoy the show. Project. This is where I talk about hell and uh, specifically the conditionalist view of hell and how it can be backed up scripturally and philosophically and in a number of ways I think it's the best view of uh, God's judgment and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a bit more of how the Bible teaches annihilationism but specifically a book written by Joseph Deere who's a, a contributor to the Rethinking Hell Ministries but has also written this extensive uh, book which is uh, it's quite a lot in it and you can get it from Amazon, you can find the link in the description. Uh, highly recommend it, I'm still engaging with it um, but I thought I'd get Joseph on here to share why he's written it, his story and uh, basically engage with some of the arguments that he's in, interacted with through his book and uh, I hope at the end of this conversation that you uh, find it helpful, that you see that there's more to um, God's judgment than just this eternal torment view which has held sway in churches and uh, tradition for a long time but I also through this conversation hope that you hear two people that love Jesus and love talking about the gospel and uh, if you want to hear more about that then please do feel free to ask questions in the live chat. We'll try and engage with them as we go. But also we're going to, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to engaging with the gospel and, and various other apologetics type questions um, if you have them um, later and on my, on my website. So without any further ado, I'm going to uh, bring Joseph on to... Now, I'm going to have to ask this. Is it Joseph or uh, do you go by... Joey, I noticed Chris Date called you <laughs> Joey, or, or are you Joe? What, uh, oh yeah. So my friends call me Joey. So uh, and then in formal context, I usually go by Joseph. Everyone shortens it to Joe, who has met me for the first time. So as long as you don't call me late for dinner, I think we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, that's good. Um, just noticed that my OBS has shrunk your screen somewhat, but I'll reset that while you're talking. So while you're um, just as an introduction. Um, how, let's start with this. How, how did you come to uh, know Jesus? How, how have you become a Christian? Oh, well, I guess the uh, Cliff Notes version is uh, I was a senior in high school. Uh, I fell in love with a missionary's daughter, and uh, that got me thinking about things, as you might imagine. Uh, that whole thing didn't pan out, but thankfully the part about me caring about God and the gospel and all that did. So went to college that next year, got involved in uh, Campus Crusade, which is now Crew, and that uh, kind of just took off from there. Nice one. That's, that is a Cliff Notes version. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, and and so was there, aside from uh, the girl, 
Um, mm-hmm. What was just a, f- a couple of things that really started you thinking that Jesus might be the truth? Well, I guess one thing was I always, I, I mean, I didn't always live the most moral life, but I had a sense that morality was real and that there was right and wrong and, you know, some sort of, you know, accountability for it. There, I never believed in subjective morality. I was never a full-on atheist. And so when that, I started thinking of that in terms of the Christian worldview, it started to make some sense there. Um, also kind of on the more emotional side, a Christian friend of my father's had passed away and at his funeral, I hadn't been exposed to much about Christianity other than God exists and Jesus vaguely. Um, so uh, that sermon really got me thinking, especially when it talked about how Jesus wept at Lazarus's grave, which really humanized him for me. It kind of got me thinking, well, maybe he does actually care because that's something that real people do, you know? Uh, I think that's a huge part of Christianity for me is that God this is something that was pointed out on the Bible project you've got Genesis 1 God is this sovereign God who's distant if we only had Jonathan, uh, Genesis 1 then we might consider mm-hmm. that to be the only view of God we have but then Genesis 2 is his will to dwell with people to dwell with man and to mm-hmm. be close and to walk with them and then you see that hope in Revelation 21 repeated where God will mm-hmm. dwell with his people so the yeah that's a huge thing for me as well that uh human humanizing is the wrong word <laughs> the, yeah the yeah. way that we are made in his image to interact and uh have a relationship with him is a, is a huge mm. thing for me as well especially in crises mm. like we're in where we can find oh, yeah. comfort <laughs> in a god who is close uh so that that's fantastic and uh just want to before we begin to say thank you for taking the time to interact with me and um and hopefully we have a, a fruitful conversation. Um, so just a, I've given you a few questions just to uh, see where this takes us. So when you became a Christian, uh, how much did hell or the judgment of God come into play uh, with that, that side of your story? You know, it kind of ebbed and flowed initially. It wasn't that big of a thing. Um, as kind of the months drug on, I started to think about it more and, um, you know, coming from a non-Christian background and having so many friends and family weren't Christians, obviously it kind of, yet you had to start thinking about it eventually. And, um, what ended up happening initially, and this might be bleeding into the question about coming to conditionalism, but that got me thinking about annihilationism because I'd heard of that, the doctrine of it before I was a Christian, um, when I was still kind of exploring and, um, it wasn't, it didn't initially get me into it, kind of went back and forth on it for a while, but it, it, it started to come up as I started to think, read the Bible more and think about these things more. The initial first several months were, I, I wouldn't say euphoric cause I had to pay a lot of attention to apologetics because having come from a non-Christian background, I was getting it at all, you know, from all ends. So I kind of had to know my stuff right away, but Hell came later as it kind of got more real and less, um, you know, my head kind of came out of the clouds, as it were. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And um, I think even as Christians, that so I grew up in the faith and I grew up around uh, understanding the traditional view. I would have probably taken the, the sort of Keller, C.S. Lewis view that mm-hmm. is yourself that gets you there. The gates of hell closed from the inside, all that sort of stuff. Um 
that when you then start digging into the Bible, you start to find a picture that's not probably quite as clear as, as that kind of idea. Well, it, it is clear, but it's not that idea, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, and so, yeah, even as Christians, it's something that I think many don't really engage with until they're challenged directly, potentially by another Christian as I was, mm-hmm. as how does it hold together uh, from what Scripture states. So you've you've taken on board the sort of traditional view and you're starting to dig into it. What kind of, what, what shifted? How, how did you come to be a part of the Rethinking Hell team? So the Rethinking Hell team, so I guess uh, fast forward a bit, a big part of it was Glenn Peoples, which you've probably heard a lot at this point. Yeah, um, I've interviewed him on this channel. Uh, yeah, he's great. Oh, yeah. oh, he is, yeah. And his, I mean, his work, if you like, especially then the Rethinking Hell crowd, this was all before Rethinking Hell existed, but you'll hear a lot of us say, oh, yeah, a big turning point was, you know, listening to Glenn Peoples or reading Glenn Peoples because he, he had some really good material on it. And, um, that was a big part of it for me. It helped make it made sense of some of the lingering issues. Um, Revelation 2010, especially because you don't see a lot of people dealing with that passage, and it's kind of important, as you might imagine. Uh, yeah. So got, he, he was a big turning point, and then when rethinking hell came about, and he you know, he was brought into it early on. Obviously, um, I think that was a definitely a key part, having his influence for sure. Um, so. As far as reading and thinking hell, I was. It's funny. All these things kind of blend together in this sort of weird mishmash of events. Uh, so Chris Date, he had a podcast, you know, and a sort of his own side ministry before he was a conditionalist and before rethinking hell. Because um, rethinking hell didn't come about till about 2012. So Chris Date, he had his, he was starting to get into conditionalism and consider it. He was a traditionalist at that point, but he had Edward Fudge on, and at one point, me and Ronnie Demler. Don't know if you've uh, interacted with Ronnie Demler, but uh, he had the consuming. Come across oh, not the consuming. Yeah, the conditionalism.net.com. Anyway, it's a great website. I can't remember the exact name. I'll look it up before the end. But we were commenting on Chris's stuff a lot. We got brought onto Chris's podcast, and so then Peter Grice, who kind of brought thought up, um, rethinking hell, he contacted Chris, and that's how me and Ronnie got involved, and then Glenn and. Other people were brought in. So Peter Grice is kind of the Nick Fury of the Avengers of Rethinking Hell, as it were. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, because he's, he's also got Rethinking Heaven as well, hasn't he? So he's, he's mm-hmm. clearly uh, keen to, to start these sorts of things up. Um, yeah, I've, I've chatted to Peter Grice a bit. Uh, Glenn was on uh, probably a couple months ago now. I think it was end of last year. I had a really good chat with him about what he saw as the future of conditionalism. If people want to check that out, it's on, on the channel. Um, really enjoyed that conversation and just, yeah, uh, uh, that's what I found really helpful about the Rethinking Health Facebook group. I just want to plug that here as well. (laughs) It's probably one of the best places I've engaged with where Christians from different backgrounds and actually some quite significant opinion, uh, opinions and differences in opinion around the views of hell particularly are able to engage in debate and discussion in a really healthy way but also in a, a way that shows the unity that Christians should have and I, I wish more groups and uh, online discussions had that sense of unity. Sure one or two people will come and find that they don't fit or don't fit that kind of idea of unity and don't, no one agrees with their opinions so they disappear but um, 
overall, that group's just really encouraged my faith uh, beyond this topic. Uh, so just want to plug that. If you haven't engaged with the Facebook group on um, called Rethink Hell, please do. Um, so that was sort of a tangent there. Uh, so you've <laughs> you've come across all these different people, and it's kind of uh, I've interacted with them as well in my own journey uh, with engaging with this discussion. Um, when when did you really sort of nail <laughs> nail your flag to the mast or whatever that expression should be? <laughs> <laughs> well, I get. I mean, in terms of when I uh, really adopted conditionalism uh, firmly. Yeah. Or do you mean right. okay? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'd say it was in. I'd been a Christian a little over a year at that point. I'd kind of gone back and forth. Um, like I said, Glenn Peoples getting into his work was a good thing for sure. And eventually, after a few months, I realized that if I set aside my preconceptions and like my kind of all the emotional stuff that was going on in the background and just look strictly at the evidence in the Bible, it's like this was definitely the more likely conclusion. And so. That's when I was able to be like, okay, you know, obviously, like, because there, obviously, if I really held the view I wanted to hold, I'd be a universalist. I think most Christians would, if they're honest with themselves. I don't think it's biblical at all. I think, I mean, I think it is the without, e- it is the easy you know, way out. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Like it would, yeah. I think it, for what it's worth, for universalists, I do think they have good arguments on other sides, theology, philosophy, and stuff. It's not biblical though. I I, I don't see how you can look at the Bible in like a, in the way that evangelicals, and I think rightly so, look at it to where um, it is inspired, it is God-breathed, but there's not, there's not this grand mystery behind the things that are in it. You know, it's, there's a lot of mysteries of God, but insofar as he's revealed things in scripture, they might not always be easy to understand, but they're meant to be understood insofar as they're revealed. Because scripture is the revelation of God. That, that's kind of how I put it there. But, um, you know, so that's when I came to that conclusion. I'm like, if I just look at it reasonably, um, then annihilationism is what the Bible teaches. And that was kind of where I was like, okay, now I'm in for sure. Yeah, this it's interesting that it was quite soon after you became a Christian. I mean, for me, it was uh, so I'd say I'd, I can't remember the expression. It probably didn't translate at all well, but basically, yeah, um, made jumped over the fence firmly. Um, was probably about three years ago now, but it was started off this conversation with just someone representing uh, presenting John three sixteen to me and just saying, mm-hmm. "What does perish mean?" And it was from there that it just kind of gradually filtered through, and I uh, started making this uh, note on my phone every verse. That started that I came across that sounded like conditionalism uh, on the mm-hmm. face of it. I just started keeping track, and then more and more. I mean, the, mm-hmm. it, the last three to go, really, in the sense of really having to exegete and discuss, um, was really Matthew twenty-five, Revelation fourteen, and Revelation twenty. And those those three are usually the first go-to's for any traditional argument. But I found that the whole weight and that that phrase "weight of scripture," uh, gentle God is that Ronnie's or is that what? Gentle of the guys God. That, yeah, that's a. I think it's Reese Watt. So the no, other R Reese's. Guy. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Reese uh, Reese Watt. If if you haven't come across Gentle God, he's got um, uh, a 
whole website, but one of them is called The Weight of Scripture, and it's just the weight of the scripture that goes to conditionalism um, is really, uh, was really key to me as I, I came to make this decision myself. So you've written this book, uh, an e-book e for those who, uh, who, who want to, to get this. Uh, I highly recommend that you do. I've, I noticed that several people, when you shared it again on the group, said mm -hmm. that this was a key point of their coming to conditionalism. So it is highly recommended. Um, <laughs> when did you start writing it? How long did it take? And is it like a working document? Are you still writing it? Good question. So um, right now it's kind of in a status of like finished the first edition, but I will probably update it in the near future with a second edition. And nice thing about Kindle is if you bought the first one, you get the second one for free. And also, um, basically on Kindle, they make you set a price like you can still um, a lot of people use the PDF link. You can still get the PDF free on my personal website, but. Uh, if you if you like Kindle, it's there for uh, pretty cheap. But uh, as yeah, as far as that goes, so that's the issue, that's kind of the status there. It's like I am slowly but surely putting together updates that will be a second edition. For a while, it was kind of more of a working document. It actually started um, after I'd been a Christian for about a year and a half or so, and I listened to Glenn Peoples' thing. I kind of wanted to put together a supplement. I basically wanted to send out to my Christian friends and crew and everything. Um, like kind of like his his podcast on it, and I kind of just putting together a supplement. Like, and here's a supplement I'm doing. And over time, it just got grew and grew and grew. And I'm like, you know, I should just turn this into my own book, you know, because yeah. And then that kind of happened, and it still kind of kept going. So it was over the course of maybe, oh gosh, I think I copyrighted it in 2016, but I started the initial kind of work in 2009. Now I wasn't consistently writing all the time, kind of in phases. So like. You know, 2009, I spent a few months writing the first version, and then a year later I created the larger version that was kind of more a standalone book, and then I would update it from time to time. And uh, so it was for a while kind of like this sort of working document that I kind of get, got to a point where I'm like, okay, now I can finally call it its own thing. Yeah, uh, that sounds, sounds a little bit about where... I can at least relate in that the mm -hmm. the sort of starting point and then building and building and building. Um, so I had uh, a similar. I guess that's what this channel is. <laughs> my working <laughs> document go. is this channel uh, exactly. and my blog. Um, so that yeah, I could definitely. There's there's always a little bit more, and just I think it shows the way that God's judgment and His character and how He interacts with those who rebel against Him is. A, a massive theme within the Bible mm -hmm. that you can write extensively on, but how that then interacts with the final judgment is really important and uh, mm -hmm. and, and really key. And one thing that I found so refreshing in, in all this exploration is that I've understood the Old Testament far more, mm -hmm. but also I can use the Old Testament examples of judgment far mm -hmm. more. Uh, it, it just it it doesn't suddenly jump into this idea of eternal ongoing conscious torment but actually yep, yeah. because the the judgment in the old testament is death the the wages of sin con consistently then in the old test uh, new testament <laughs> hey it's it's the same and we see that in the mm -hmm. new testament authors as well um and and so instead of me rambling uh so one of the <laughs> questions I, I want to ask you then is 
you've you've taken a long time to write this, and you've got a, a decent experience of uh, rethinking hell. You've got articles on their on their website, but what is what are the three strongest arguments for conditionalism mm. uh, that you've come to? Um, and I'll be interested to know, as sort of like a side point, have they changed from when you first started really looking at conditionalism? Sure thing. So I would say the three greatest arguments are the language of death, the language of destruction, and the surprising weaknesses of the traditionalist proof text when you look at them further. Um, so like for that last point, uh, Chris Date makes a big point of that in a lot of his debates. He'll oftentimes start by pointing out, he'll appeal to the traditionalist standard proof text like Matthew 25, 46, Revelation 14, 9, 11, and so forth. And uh, point out that, you know, when you really look into these, even these are you know, very, you can see conditionalism even these. Like, I know for, I've heard several people say that when they realize that Mark 9.48 is quoting Isaiah 66.24 and that it's about corpses. So that's the passage, you know, everyone, the one about um, how in hell, you know, their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched. Well, Jesus is just quoting without any further explanation at all. He's quoting a passage, Isaiah 66, 24, where God's talking about the corpses of all these people who are slain, and their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched. And that's a huge thing for people. So, like, wait, he's referencing a passage about burning corpses being eaten by worms? That's not what you expect that passage to be about. So, Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Mm -hmm. that, that was actually just a, sort of a, a little anecdote. So I was talking to someone mm -hmm. recently about that. And um, just to add to the weight of Isaiah 66, 24, mm -hmm. um, one thing that sort of blew my mind a little bit was uh, that I shared with a mate uh, was Chris Date pointing out that the word for abhorrence in Isaiah 66, mm -hmm. 24 is the same word as contempt from Daniel 12, 2. Mm -hmm. and, and it highlights that it's not the everlasting... Uh, experience of the wicked in Daniel 12.2, it shows that mm -hmm. it's the experience of the righteous looking on to mm -hmm. those who are experiencing the destruction. And uh, uh, that just blew my mind. And when I shared that with a mate, he was like, oh, and he's on the fence a little bit with the... Mm -hmm. uh, and he was just like, oh, okay, that's another another pillar for propping up <laughs> conditionalism. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, really, that's a huge thing for me, just seeing Jesus quote verbatim without and without changing or without adding. And by the way, those corpses are animated and experiencing this unquenchable fire. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that's, that's not what he teaches. Nope. Um, so those, those three, just on that note, I've noticed that um, there's a Michael E who says hello on the live chat, and it, it kind of goes along the lines <laughs> of your story of um, the traditional views. Um, mm -hmm. how, uh, trying to get the word in this, how did you see beyond the way most of Christianity views the immortality of the soul? And it's slightly philosophical, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, mm -hmm. How how did you move past that? as a um a view because that is the, that is probably the the strongest pillar even if most people don't realize it mm -hmm. that holds up the traditional view is that the right. soul is immortal how mm -hmm. did you get past that well the immortality of soul part was actually kind of easier for me because that's not really in the bible at all like e even some of the you know more standard texts used to show the doctrine of eternal torment like 
I can totally understand how someone, especially if they have that in the back of their mind, would see eternal punishment, eternal fire, that sort of thing, and think, oh, and they must be burning forever or something. Um, but as far as the immortality of soul, like, it's not there. Like, there's not even a case for it. You know, um, I remember I went to one uh, website, and it was a pretty good website, gotquestions.org, and I remember reading their case for the immortality of the soul. It was basically just the proof text for eternal torment, like Matthew 25, 46 and everything. There was no case for an underlying belief of the immortality of the soul. And slowly but surely, you do see some traditionalists coming around on that, basically point, conceding, yes, it's not that the Bible teaches the immortality of the soul, it's just that the Bible teaches the eternal torment, and so therefore we know the soul's immortal. And once you grant that, you, you can't appeal to the immortality of the soul as evidence for eternal torment. That's circular reasoning. And so the, that was one of the easier points. It was like, it's not here. I don't know how you guys came to that. I mean, I, I know some of the arguments, um, but it's not, there's no, there's not even like a proof text in the scripture typically used to say, this shows an immortal soul. It's not there. Yep. Uh, agreed. And that was one thing that I noticed as well when I was looking into, when I started moving to this, um, was the it's not just not in the bible the bible teaches against it i've mm -hmm. got the fact that they're removed from the garden so that they do not live forever that's the mm -hmm. direct phrase of uh of god <laughs> in genesis 3 Absolutely. and then you've got um in uh was it 1 timothy 6 mm -hmm. i think or 1 timothy 6 16 and i think 2 timothy mm -hmm. 1 10 it's it, there's two verses that say only God is immortal. Mm -hmm. And so then you've got to read into this idea, if, if eternal torment is true, you've got to read that into those passages to say, well, actually, God makes the wicked immortal. And it's, it's mm -hmm. really interesting seeing the back and forth between James White and uh, Chris Date at the moment. With, oh, yeah. Uh, this, this phrase, eternal life. And actually, recently, again, on, on <laughs> Dividing Line, James White has mm -hmm. actually called uh, eternal life... <laughs> something ongoing living forever um mm -hmm. wow. and uh when he's he's saying that chris date has misrepresented his view but it's very mm -hmm. true that the traditional oh, yeah. view says that you are an everyone is eternal in some aspect mm -hmm. it's where you end up and yeah i agreed with you it's just not mm -hmm. not in scripture um mm -hmm. so uh michael i see your question i'm going to hold that for a bit and we'll we'll, we'll come back to that one uh, but I hope that discussion there has helped a little bit. Um, so we've got, um, you've got a bunch of responses to the arguments that you've made in your book. Mm -hmm. What are the strongest arguments, either universalist or ECT, mm -hmm. against conditionalism that you've come across? So uh, I'd say for ECT, the strongest argument is Revelation 2010. Um it's I do go over that in my book in quite a lot of detail because it's like the most important verse for sure. It might not be the most commonly cited. I think Matthew twenty five forty six is probably like the gold standard most common verse, but that one's relatively easy. Revelation twenty ten, you know, we do have to explain how John could see a vision and say of these you know three beings, the beast, false prophet, and the devil in the vision that they, you know, it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Obviously, you need some good explanation for that if you're going to say that nobody is tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, I think, you know, I think we do give a good case for that. Um, I think it's telling that the only time you see anything clear like that at all 
is in a symbolic vision in the book of Revelation of a seven-horned monster with his friend who burps frogs that are demons and, you know, and this manifestation of the devil, which may or may not be a dragon in the vision. I'm not totally sure, but it's the fact that you're in this clearly symbolic thing, a lake of fire that the abstract entity of death is thrown into, too. Like, that's that's the starting point of the argument against eternal torment from that view. But it's I think it's telling that only in that context you actually have a clear teaching of eternal torment in any context at all. And uh, and then from the universalist standpoint, um, they don't have necessarily one passage of the same strength. I think they have strength a lot in terms of the philosophical arguments, the theological arguments, the the, the all and the language of all and everyone like that. That at face value does support their view. I think once you look into it, you can it's consistent with other views as well. But I think that sort of those passages, as well as in Romans five, where you have the comparison between Adam and Jesus, like those are the say the strongest arguments for universalism. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think there's necessarily a lot of strong arguments against conditionalism as much as there are some you know decent points made in favor of other views. I think I, I agree with with that. The I found the probably the the weightiest uh, condi- you are argument at the moment is coming from Robin Parry's book. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't, but there I find there's an overemphasis on God is love. That's like mm-hmm. the the pillar that holds up the main argument, and and then their understanding of what that means of love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Means that anything that is destructive can't be love, mm-hmm. and uh, and then they sort of hold that up as a, a filter as to how they see God's character. And I, I can't get around that because love obviously has uh, other, other aspects to it, and that's not mm-hmm. his soul. That's not the soul characteristic of right. uh, God that we're meant to define everything else through. Um, so that, that that bit I do understand, and but I think I find Robin Parry quite. Um, uh, I like his writing because his emphasis is on Jesus and on mm-hmm. Jesus's death and Jesus mm-hmm. and God's grace, and I find that a real like isn't God's grace so extraordinary that saved me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it saved you, and isn't God's grace and His death so sufficient mm-hmm. that it could save even the most vile of sinners? And there is an aspect of of our theology mm-hmm. that wants to go yes, and I, and that's mm-hmm. when I hear people who say they're hopeful universalists. I, I kind of mm-hmm. go, yeah, I can kind of get that, mm-hmm. but then there's also an element of yeah, the, it starts to go philosophical of the the free will aspect of the um, justice aspect. Actually, mm-hmm. I, I think for for those who and we are required to forgive. So that's the argument that I haven't quite yet dealt with. There's a reason on my channel I haven't put out. So I've put out a video explaining what eternal conscious torment is. That was a two-part, both scriptural and philosophical. Mm-hmm. And I've said what conditional immortality is, but there's a reason I haven't put universal uh, reconciliation video out yet. It's just because I'm engaging with it. And oh, yeah. uh, I want to do, do that justice. I want to do the strongest arguments well and then engage mm-hmm. with those. And I haven't quite... I haven't quite got there yet in how to mm. make my own thoughts clear on that. But it, it is that is a strong pull for any mm-hmm. Christian who understands God's grace and the outrageous outrageousness of it mm-hmm. <laughs> that He forgives us. Um, oh, yeah. So and that's 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 great. And um, so you've got 
I wanted to talk a little bit about um, mm-hmm. universalism because I haven't done no. that too much on my channel yet, and mm-hmm. I noticed that you've got a section on it. So mm-hmm. we've talked a little bit about God's grace and His love and how His forgiveness and His His death is so extraordinary that it covers the most uh, vile sinners if they repent, at least mm-hmm. in this life. That would be what we. Uh, I, I hold to. I, I, mm-hmm. I assume you do. There is a question yeah. about the intermediate state in a minute. In a minute, we'll get to. <laughs> um, but uh, what are some of your responses? You've already hinted a little bit that there's mm-hmm. a the scriptural case. But what what are your go-to responses against universalism? So mainly with that, my approach is kind of to look at the specific strict scriptural arguments for it, as well as the case for conditionalism, which I think is stronger. So, for example, with the language of um, the, the language of all and every person, you know, you dig into that deeper, and because obviously, you know, traditionalists and Christians who were you know non-universalists, they've obviously been aware of that language for you know two thousand years. Um, of course, that's true for the death language, and a lot of people miss that. But be that as it may, in terms of the language there. Um, and when you dig into it, you, you see that a lot of times there's something clearly in the context which at least gives a reasonable way to limit it. Like, um, you know, in some cases, the, the context shows that it's all people as in both Gentiles and Jews, not necessarily every single individual. Um, and uh, or in cases where um, there's the one in First Timothy 4, I believe, where it talks about how God wills that all be saved. Um, at face value, that does fit with universalists. And I, I mean, I don't think that there is like a I don't think that you can say it definitely isn't universalist. But I think there's ways that it's consistent with other views. That's how it is with all these. Like there's no in some sense. while I wouldn't say the biblical case is any stronger than traditionalism. In fact, I'd say it's it's toss up which one's stronger biblically. But there isn't sort of this sense where there any of these arguments are definitely bad and definitely false. It's more like none of them are compelling. Every one of them, there's another reasonable way to take it in light of conditionalism. And so therefore, because conditionalism has much more biblical weight overall, it's, you know, the right thing is to take them in that way. So, you know, because with the all language, there's rarely any time where you're like, this definitely is not speaking of every individual. More like in context, it makes sense to think of it as speaking of groups of people and go from there. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, that brings a lot of clarity, actually, even in some of the conversations and the, the processing that I've been uh, in terms of engaging with that argument. Um, and, and that's kind of how I felt. I've, I've read Thomas Talbot's The Inescapable mm-hmm. Love of God, and that's pretty much how I felt through, through his emphasis on the all means all and the um, God won't... God can do this but won't corrupt the free will mm-hmm. and... I just, I get it, but I, I'm just not mm-hmm. convinced by it, especially yeah. when, and, and I think the the bit that I found the least convincing of that book is it starts to pull out that, yes, God will destroy the sin nature or the mm-hmm. old man, and so it becomes very specific destruction, which mm-hmm. I just don't see in Scripture at all. Yeah. And um, so I, what, one issue that I that comes up in these arguments is the qualification between what kind of death we're dealing with. Are we dealing with spiritual mm-hmm. death? Are we dealing with physical death? Well, it's, it's all death. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I like how rethinking hell deals with that. It's the 
cessation of embodied life as we were meant mm-hmm. to be and uh, we no longer experience life mm-hmm. and um, so I, all, all of those definitions I think are, are valid mm-hmm. but my, my argument against traditionalism is well the Bible doesn't qualify which death we're talking about and, and so we shouldn't and then we've got the UR defence qualifies what kind of death we're talking about in a slightly different way mm-hmm. it's the death of sin not the death of the wicked despite right. what psalm 37 or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or any number of psalms or oh, yeah. Old testament passages say um or new testament passages say mm-hmm. very much the the individual will be responsible for his sin if he doesn't accept christ's covering mm-hmm. and um yeah so all, all that that's very helpful thanks uh no I appreciate that, and, and I think that's something that I need to dig into a little bit more as well. Mm-hmm. So, there's a again another section of your book that I noticed, um, which mm-hmm. I found interesting, partly because I recently talked to Roger Harper on my channel, and Roger, mm-hmm. um, you've probably interacted through Rethinking Hell mm-hmm. with him. He holds a dualist view of uh, the mm-hmm. makeup of humanity. Mm-hmm. And um, but also holds the view that uh, Sheol, Hades, is somewhere that will be experienced, and he interprets the sort of near-death experiencing and vision elements of mm-hmm. of people like Bill Weiss and mm-hmm. um, I can never sell his name. I uh, always second guess it. Bill Weiss and uh, maybe I'm never sure. Asked, uh, <laughs> and uh, a, a few others. Those who have visited hell and then written to tell about it. He would interpret those as all visiting Hades, mm-hmm. um, because Hades is somewhere that can be experienced. What's what's your take on near-death experiences and visions? So I'm pretty skeptical of them overall. Um, you know, if indeed Roger Harper's correct about how Hades works, it could be that some see them. But uh, in terms of like the ones you mentioned there, I, I address a couple of those specifically in the book, and then near-death experiences more broadly. Because I guess, properly speaking, Mary Kay Baxter and uh, Bill Weiss aren't actually near-death experiences. You know, they're, they're visions that were supposedly given. But it's the same kind of thing. In, in all those cases, I'm skeptical for one reason or another. And for those two, I'm skeptical more of the details of what they say. Uh, in the case of Bill Weiss, um, he literally had a 23-minute experience of hell in his sleep. I mean, there's a there's a name for when you have a 23 minute experience in your sleep, you know. Uh, and as I look both in the details of what he says as well as some of the background, I'm like, it, to me, like, some people think he's a fraud. I'm much more inclined with other believers as long as they don't, you know, show very bad fruit to think they're, pr- insofar as they can something can happen without malintent. I'm tend to side on that. I think he just had a bad dream. You know, he was already a Pentecostal Christian who expected that these kind of visions would happen in real life. He goes to bed one night, has this really horrific, you know, night terror of sorts. In his, because of his sort of worldview and approach, he thinks that those visions are supposed to be shown. So he interprets it as having been a supernatural vision and not a 23-minute dream. And uh, and then the details you read in, it's like the details he comes up with. These are. He takes scripture out of context, kind of contradicts himself at times when you listen to different versions. And so I I just think he had a bad dream. He didn't have great theology, so he interprets it in that lens. Um, Now, for the true near-death experiences, I think those kind of, 
a lot of stuff can happen there. You know, when you look, here's the thing about them. Near-death experiences and other traditionalists have pointed this out, like Billy Graham, John Ankerberg, and a book he wrote recently. I'll look up the name because it's pretty useful. Uh, basically point out that a lot of these near-death experiences just reflect what other people already believed. Or they otherwise reflect things that are contrary to Christianity. So before we're like, oh, well, this person had a near-death experience, so of course it's true. How many people had near-death experiences where they saw a different god? Or they saw um, a vision where everyone goes to heaven, not even because of Jesus, like not even Christian universalism, but just, you know, God is love and he's just this white being in the sky. Like there's thousands of these cases. Like there have been massive studies on this, you know, by by medical doctors, um, by psychologists. Like this is a really widespread phenomenon and most of it goes against the Christian worldview, which, yeah, so it's. So we shouldn't be so quick to say, oh, someone had this, so we should just take it at face value. Probably should dig in a little more, as we do with Bill Weiss and others. Yeah, I, I've come to that conclusion myself regarding near-death experiences, that generally people experience what, they, uh, <coughs> um, what they've grown up with, kind of what they've been programmed mm -hmm. to, to view. Mm -hmm. And I probably agree that Bill Weiss, his vision or dream, and I, I've engaged with it on this channel as well i don't think i completed his whole talk but he completely tears it's not even proof texting he tears mm -hmm. verses out of context mm -hmm. and says look this is exactly uh, what i experienced and so well you're the verse you've just read doesn't ex describe what you've said on the first reading and then in its context it doesn't mm -hmm. describe that either um so I, I i found that but i've also found those who who take Mary Kay Baxter's book and Bill Weiss's book and, and these sorts of visions as proof of Christianity mm -hmm. um, overly dismissive of any other near-death experience that isn't Christian. So I pointed out mm -hmm. to people, well, how, what about these near-death experiences? They've shown Vishnu or some Hindu god to be true or what, what do you do with those? Oh, they're, they're false. <laughs> There's no reason why they're false. They're just false. They're because... Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you, you've got to you can't a bring a vision and then read into the Bible that vision like Mary Kay Baxter does. I mean, she thinks mm -hmm. hell looks like a body, and you, she's walking up the leg and various other mm. parts of, and it's it's weird, um, mm -hmm. and it's not biblical. <laughs> but there's these churches that just just lap it up, and it it it's a bit infuriating that they don't inspect all the other near death experiences from other religions in, in the same way. Um, so I, I think we're we're pretty well in agreement there. I mean, just out of curiosity, uh, would you call yourself a dualist, a physicalist, or are you on the fence or undecided? Yeah, so I consider myself a physicalist. I'm much more tentative about it than I am annihilationism. And mm. I will make a point that in my book, well, one, I wrote it for the most part when I was undecided. And I make a very concerted effort to be like, even if dualism is true, all of these things, like there's a set the section on death. Most of it is from the dualist standpoint, because for physicalists, the death language is even simpler. When you die, you're gone until God brings you back, for the most part. So you say, oh, it's really for the dualist section where we have to be like, okay, if there's a soul that does consciously exist, which in any context we'd say lives, if this soul is conscious in the intermediate state, how is that consistent with death being like annihilation? Doesn't that show that you, know, you can be conscious while dead? And I'm like, 
no, and here's why. You know, I break it down. I point out that both in terms of how we normally talk about things and the Bible itself, like the Bible specifies at points, first death kills the body. So even if the soul is conscious and alive in, you know, the good place or the bad place, it's not, it's not dead like the body is. Like the body is what dies. In Matthew 10, 28, which we conditionalists point to a lot, the, the fact that Jesus says, you know, don't fear men who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, well, that kind of tells us what the first death is. It's the death of the body, like not the soul. And then James 2.26 is pointed to to show, oh, they're separate. They're soul and your, your spirit and your body. I'm like, well, it doesn't say that both die. It says that the body dies when the spirit leaves it. And so I make a big point of that being like, if dualism's true, this is still how death works. So... Yeah, I'm a, I've become a physicalist tentatively. A few passages do give me pause. and um, But for the most part, I think that makes more sense. It definitely, I think it makes more sense for a conditionalist to be a physicalist. That doesn't mean all conditionalists are physicalists. A lot are dualists. Um, but yeah, I was kind of, yeah. Well, good. <laughs> oh, no, I would consider myself a uh, dualist at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Again, it's something like you. I'd say be tentative about it. I I find the data to be mixed <laughs> at best, mm-hmm. and I, right. I find people like uh, Glenn Peoples, and I'm sure yourself, the arguments for physicalism. I I can understand them and I get them, um, but I also have the the awareness of these other verses that I haven't yet engaged with the physicalist right. arguments against them. So. Mm-hmm. And it always comes up the sort of witch of Endor. Sounds like something from mm-hmm. uh, Lord of the Rings, but is uh, Samuel <laughs> being brought up yeah. by uh, Saul? And um, you've got also the the idea of the saints and the host of heaven and and things like that. So I, I'm I'm a tentative dualist. <laughs> You're a tentative <laughs> physicalist. And part of the reason for me asking that, alongside the mm-hmm. idea of near death experiences, I mean, in that sense, uh, physicalism doesn't really concern itself with the idea of Hades being conscious or there being mm-hmm. uh, torment in that and so you, you kind of remove yourself from that debate in that way mm-hmm. um, but I, just uh, responding to this question there's a question mm-hmm. here of uh, some scholars claim that those in mm-hmm. Sheol experience conscious torment after death before the resurrection what position mm-hmm. do you hold well I think you've answered yours your position yeah. uh, it'd be more like it's like sleep between mm-hmm. death and resurrection uh, mm-hmm. For me, the jury is out. I know I don't see enough data to say to warrant the the literal trans- interpretation of uh, Luke sixteen. This sixteen is it? Mm-hmm. Parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah that's sixteen nineteen to thirty one. Um, so I don't take that as literally uh, as a literal place uh, mm-hmm. like Roger does. I uh, Roger Harper argues that it's. Uh, and I can see his argument. Jesus sets his parables in the real world, and mm-hmm. this is the only place that wouldn't be in the real world uh, or mm-hmm. a real realm. And it's odd for him to do that. I can I can understand mm-hmm. that. The reason I don't take it so literally is I think it's connected mm-hmm. to rabbinic tales that we just don't mm-hmm. get at the, from our time. Mm-hmm. And I, I oh. think he's you like he does in parables. He's using things that are known. Mm-hmm. Not necessary places that are known. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm still working that through. I've done a bit of an engagement on Luke 16 on mm-hmm. my channel as well, for those who are interested. 
But I, I think the jury's out as to whether or not people experience torment in Hades between death and resurrection. I find some there's some good questions that give me pause. So, for example, the length of time experienced would mean that even if you're not getting much torment from <laughs> being killed right. in 2000 BC to now... It, mm-hmm. You're still getting a lot more than someone who dies now, and well, maybe not, depending on when Christ returns. But <laughs> from someone who dies now <laughs> and doesn't deserve an awful lot of torment till when Christ returns. So I, th- I think there's some, yeah, I, I don't concern myself too much with that intermediate state. I find it interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I engage with it from now time to time, mm-hmm. um, but ultimately, I think the Bible is clear on the ultimate judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not so clear necessarily on on what happens between death and resurrection. Though, I Mm -hmm. I do see there's some simplicity uh, in the physicalist argument that I think Mm -hmm. um, can be helpful to look into for those who are interested in that debate. Mm -hmm. So, moving away from the physicalist Hades aspect then, um, Mm -hmm. and also just trying to to keep to time a little bit. um, (laughs) So, and is is there anything particularly in your book that you really enjoyed writing that's like your fav- favorite part of mm. um the conversation really well good question i think uh i think a lot of it goes back to the part about um how one of the three strongest points i think is the weakness of the arguments from traditionalist texts cuz i th- i i spent a lot more time on that than i do the proof no the proof well, the text for Annihilation. I guess some might call them proof texts, but because I think, um, I mean, I think in general, if you, you know, rebuttals take more time when there's a lot of them. So, you know, it's it's not that hard to demonstrate that the word death means what we normally think it means in terms of death, and the fact that the Bible, because at face, you can't take everything at face value, obviously, because there's a few passages like Revelation 20:10 at face value go against our view. And then, obviously, other doctrines, too. Like, you, you can't just assume everything's at face value. But it helps that our, that throughout most of the Bible, at face value, it's annihilationism. Um, and I think, I didn't even realize that when I was, like, a young Christian and a traditionalist. Like, you don't, you don't think of it until someone really points it out to you. It's like, because you're used to, before I was a Christian, I was used to Catholics talking about the seven deadly sins and everything. And, you know, I just understood that deadly sins meant sins that send you to eternal conscious hell even though it's used the term deadly. I thought that was weird, but I still, you know, but I figured, okay, that's just how it works. And so I think that's how, when you're reading the Bible, you see all these passages of death and life. People just take for granted that they mean these things because they've been taught to. And you start looking back at it again, and you're like, wow, there's so much here. Like, when I first became an annihilationist, I put a lot more emphasis on the destruction language than the death language. Because I'm like, yeah, well, death's still kind of ambiguous. It's like, it's not really ambiguous, though. It it can be a metaphor. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, just a priori, it can't be a metaphor for, you know, eternal conscious separation from God or something. But there's nowhere in the Bible that actually lays that out. It's, you, you have to read that into the meaning. And I understand why. There are passages that no one takes at face value. You know, it talks about you were dead in your sins. No one thinks that he was talking to corpses that rose from the dead. So obviously there's something going on there. But to bring in this new meaning of death is you, you really have to read that in. And so that's why I didn't necessarily spend as much time on the affirmative because I'm like, all I really needed to do there was show this stuff that sounds like annihilationism really does mean annihilationism. So 
I kind of had spent a lot more time and kind of had a little more fun poking around with, you know, the other ones like, okay, Matthew 25, 46 and, you know, eternal punishment. What can we make of that? And what are some arguments against that? And, you know, what are arguments against our arguments? And there are some, there's not as many as you would expect with a lot of that, which like even James White was talking about, it's like traditionalists, you need to do a better job of addressing these. And to be fair, I don't think traditionalists can, like, I don't, I don't think it's because they're failures. I think it's because their doctrine's false. You can only defend a bad doctrine so much. Uh, so I, so that was kind of the fun there. I'm like, okay, here's this, here's my you know, argument of why this is how it is and why it doesn't mean what it means at face value and how this makes a lot more sense. And oh, by the way, if you really think about it, this kind of goes to the side of annihilation more than anything else. I'm not as emphatic as Chris Date about that. I don't think he's wrong. I just, he puts more emphasis on when you look at these traditionalist passages, they all teach, you know, annihilationism. I was a little more standoffish, but I made that point at the end. I'm like, of that section, I'm like, if you guys really think about it, looking at what I've argued, even these passages all kind of sound more like annihilationism. And so that was probably the fun part, the the traditionalist uh, rebuttal, which I actually start with. In that sense, I am like Chris Date. I started with that and then looked at the affirmative for um, our view. That's, that's great. I, I find that really interesting. And like you and like Chris Date, I've, uh, I, I found the traditional arguments the more mm-hmm. I engaged with them, actually pointed mm-hmm. me more towards conditionalism. They are, they're incredibly weak uh, when when you really deal with each one uh, and, and stay in the passage, or at least mm-hmm. within the context and the mm-hmm. way the author writes. Um, I found really convincing uh, the way um, in Revelation 14, people go here, mm-hmm. Revelation 14, 9 to 11, traditionalism, bam, Mm-hmm. try and shut down the conversation but you when you engage with that and you look at revelation 18 and 19 and the the complete removal of babylon mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. language that the angels say in revelation 19 3 you're like oh mm-hmm. the, the angels are using this smoke goes up forever and ever as a sign mm-hmm. of babylon's complete removal from the new creation uh, from mm-hmm. from the world and mm-hmm. you go oh okay so actually just yeah. because there's torment in there Mm-hmm. Does that really mean that that is going to be an ongoing experience, or have I yeah. brought some cultural understanding into this? Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's look at it. Let's dig into it, and then you start mm-hmm. finding Isaiah thirty-four as the background mm-hmm. to it, and you go, "Oh, okay, so smoke yeah. going up actually means the complete destruction of Edom. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So maybe John Game didn't changer. mean it, the, John didn't mean complete torment forever and ever, as though that's mm-hmm. the the only way to look at it and and so i find it really fascinating when you've got really gifted christian academics mm-hmm. that know how to do all this stuff mm-hmm. but just ignore almost the the strength mm-hmm. of that argument and I, I i engage a little bit with that um i've had a discussion with chris date around revelation and we looked mm-hmm. at uh, gk beale's commentary around those two verses so if anyone mm-hmm. really wants to dig into that more Feel free to do that um, in that video. But yeah, like you, I actually find it really interesting digging into those arguments. Uh, mm-hmm. I found that the same thing occurred with Denny Burke's response mm-hmm. in The Four Views of Hell. And you start using, seeing these uh, arguments just rolled out as uh, game changers. The other one, more mm-hmm. philosophical one is the the argument of uh, infinite sin against an infinite God needs an infinite mm. punishment. Mm-hmm. 
I've just pulled out a whole other rabbit hole. <laughs> what would what would what would be your response to to that argument? And then we'll probably start wrapping this up. And um, if anyone's got a question in the live chat, feel free to uh, mm-hmm. ping it through now. But um, otherwise, we'll start after engaging with that argument. What would be your your response? Sure thing. Well, uh, so I guess the first thing I'd start with is that argument. It, this doesn't make it false necessarily, but it's not in the Bible. Nowhere does the Bible lay out that argument. You know, it was, it was. I mean, I don't. I'm sure someone before Anselm thought of it, but Anselm made it, you know, famous, you know, about a thousand years ago because there needed to be an explanation for how, you know, these finite people who do single acts in time who cannot. There's no like. There's no real way that you can do something eternally in a finite period of time when you're a finite being. But how, so how could this justify even grave sins, you know, even Stalin or things like that? How can that justify, you know, infinite conscious punishment? Well, that argument was put forth basically as a defense of the traditional view. The idea that this is what Christianity teaches, so this seems like a good way to explain it. I think a lot of people have run with that and made it as though it's an affirmative, like, this definitely proves it. Like, no, it doesn't. It's not in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that lays that out specifically. It, that's the, you know, probably the first thing I go with. It's a phil- strictly philosophical claim. And once you go down that road, things get murky. One, because you're dealing with infinity and, you know, infinite and eternal. That's a lot of our math doesn't always make sense in that way. Um, and I will say also, um, and in a sense, annihilationism is also an infinite punishment insofar as, you know, you, even in theory, you sin once and you lose out on eternal life forever. Um, and for that reason, that's why I don't completely dismiss the concept of the argument. Cause I'm like, we kind of need something like that too, if you think about it. Uh, but I, there's nothing in it that shows it must be eternal conscious torment because there's the argument itself isn't in the Bible. Like it's, it's basically meant to be our way of explaining how some form of an infinite punishment, which in a sense, at least we both sides agree on can be just, and uh, once you get to that, it's like, okay, why does it have to be yours versus ours? There's nothing in the Bible that says much. And then, actually, I did a Rethinking Hell argue, uh, article a few years ago on it, and I kind of dig deeper into, like, specific arguments people make. Like, they point out that, you know, if you, you lie to this person, it's, well, you know, there's they might just get mad at you, but you lie to the IRS, and that's worse, and you get punished more. And I'm like, well, part of that, too, like, a lot of those specific arguments have uh, issues, too. Like, for example, if you lie to the IRS at least in terms of under law, what you're actually doing is stealing. You're not just lying. So, you know, if you lie on your tax return, you underpay tax, you know, that's, you know, tax fraud, tax evasion, that's a form of theft. So it's not, you can't compare them directly. And stuff like that came up, and I was just like, that's, those things there too. Plus people point out like, oh, if you torture an animal, it's this bad. But if you torture a human, it's this bad. And that got me thinking, I'm like, well, if you torture an animal for the fun of it, isn't that also a sin, which then leads to infinite punishment on their own view? You know, it's like, because you can't sin, yeah, you can't sin against an animal without committing a sin, which falls into the thing there. And and I'm not a vegetarian or something. I'm I'm fine with eating animals and stuff within reason. But, you know, what I mean, like you can't sin against some if any sin involves infinite punishment, then no matter what agent you sin against, you're ultimately sinning against God anyway. 
That's, that's a really good point, actually. So it ends up, yeah, add, adding more to the problem. Um, I, I think the the worst uh, analogy of of that degrees of punishment thing that I come across was a recent video someone shared, very well made with a lot of very clever Christians on it. Just unfortunate that they make this argument. Is uh, the one? It's like you uh, key something. If you take a key to a, a wreck of a car in a, a rubbish dump, basically you, nothing's going to happen to you. You then take a key to someone's old. Uh, bomb of a car it still works mm-hmm. still runs but it's not really value any value mm-hmm. you're not really good you might get someone annoyed at you but it's not really going to do anything for you then take it to a ferrari and suddenly mm-hmm. the punishment is great and I don't, mm-hmm. have they thought that one through <laughs> is that yeah. really really how we compare sin to god is is yeah. that god is it's, of of yeah. ferrari value <laughs> it oh, just exactly. doesn't make sense it's, to me you can't damage god like that's the thing you can sin against him which is obviously terrible that's why mm. hell exists in one form or another but like the reason the ferrari thing works is because you're damaging a car and it takes a substantial amount of wealth to fix it versus not very much wealth at, or maybe not at all if it's a really crappy car that no one wants to fix at all so mm. You can't damage God, though. You're not causing more damage to God than you're causing to humans. If anything, because humans are finite and mortal, you sin against them, you're causing more damage to them than you are to God. Because God, you know, you can't damage God. He's invincible. That's not what mm. it's about, you know. Yeah. So even there, that argument causes all sorts of issues. And these analogies tend to do so. Yeah, massively. So uh, we've just got one question that's come in, sort of, I think, around this idea of infinite punishment. Uh, so what do you think of the idea that rather than sins on earth warranting infinite punishment, mm-hmm. uh, the, the idea that actually in hell folks just keep sinning, mm-hmm. uh, cursing God, it's, that sin is just this continuation uh, in hell? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't necessarily think, I don't think it's impossible, but I, one, I don't think anywhere in the Bible teaches it. Two, I'm an annihilationist, so I don't think people are alive in hell to keep sinning. Uh, three, it, it takes out some of the like when the Bible talks about things like eternal punishment, and uh, which I do address in the book, if you know you're wondering how I come across that, but you know, um, like things like that, and it talks about this final judgment and how people are condemned for the sins they commit on earth. Like I think when you look into these judgment passages, like it seems clear that it's judging people for what they did on earth, and that's why they get you know eternal punishment, as Matthew twenty five forty six says. Obviously, I think of that differently than a traditionalist would, but like it seems that. You're judged and sentenced based on what you've done on Earth, not future events. So the, it at least seems to go against the Bible in that sense. It definitely is not taught anywhere in the Bible. And I could see how one could use that as a possible justification for eternal torment once you establish that that's what you believe the Bible teaches. But there's nothing affirmative that would say you know, annihilationism can't be true because people keep sinning in hell. Well, they get destroyed, so they they don't keep sinning. Yeah, I think I find the argument quite interesting that um, that whole idea of keep on sinning, mm-hmm. just from the perspective of the new creation, you've mm-hmm. got this new creation that God destroys the first creation, or th- uh, the mm-hmm. the first earth will pass away. Mm-hmm. And with the idea that in Revelation 21, all things are made new, no more death, no more mourning, and mm-hmm. anyone who isn't in Christ is outside and dead, uh, like Isaiah mm-hmm. 66, 24. And so this idea of the continuation of sin 
mm-hmm. is actually I find contradictory to the hope, the Christian hope that there'll be no mm-hmm. more sin. And one of the things that really uh, put it together for me was the mm-hmm. linking of Romans six twenty three with one Corinthians mm-hmm. fifteen fifty six, I think it is. We've mm-hmm. got the wages of sin is death, and the the end of mm-hmm. sin, the perp, the telos of sin, ends mm-hmm. up with being death. But then mm-hmm. you, in one Corinthians fifteen, you've got the uh, sting of yeah, the sting of death is sin. The sting of sin is death. Is that, is that right? Hold on, I've got it the wrong way around. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, wages of sin is death. The sting of death is sin. That's the one. That, that there's this interconnection, this interplay of <laughs> death and sin, oh, yeah. in a way that w- one day we want it to be no more. <laughs> and exactly. uh, for for sin to continue means that I think the new creation becomes this odd place where sin still is, and mm-hmm. actually Christ's death isn't victorious over that and i i find that really actually a a weird and bizarre way of looking at the Mm -hmm. the hope that we have as christians um so there's there's one more thing that's come in i mean do you have anything to Mm -hmm. add to that no i think that makes a lot of sense i think it's a good argument against traditionalism entirely you know universalism fits with it too obviously but it's like our you know our view helps it creates a universe where this isn't continuing everything is set to right We've got, um, there's a bit of uh, trouble with the live chat. Okay, so um, <laughs> L- Little Miss Muffintop, that, I do thank you for coming on to the live chat again. I've just, um, it's, it's a great name, I have to say. That's a great <laughs> handle that you've got there. Um, oh, yeah. If you want to send this the second message in a moment, then we'll try and engage with it. Otherwise, it's getting close to uh, my daughter's dinner time, and I need to uh, go in and help with that. So, um if it doesn't come through in a moment, then we'll, we'll just start closing up and maybe I'll engage with that uh, question. Oh, here we go. Uh, what makes the eternity... Uh, hold on. Before the two, I said I didn't find it plausible. All right, so he's giving the answer. So she didn't find it plausible. Or he, sorry. I, I don't actually know. <laughs> Apologies, <laughs> I'm going to offend someone. Uh, so, uh, don't find it plausible because one, that makes the eternity of hell contingent on whether people actually do continue sinning. Okay, so mm-hmm. yeah, it is definitely circular. And two, mm-hmm. uh, seems to me like the circumstances of the traditionist hell would remove a lot of blameworthiness uh, from the people doing it. So that, mm-hmm. yeah, they wouldn't have responsibility if they were only there to continue mm-hmm. in their sin. Um, thank you for your engagement and. Uh, yeah, please do continue to engage with this channel and uh, no offence intended by my <laughs> confusion <laughs> over that. Um, great. So thank you to those who have been watching. If you're watching later on, please do feel free to comment and subscribe and like the video and engage with the content. If you are a traditionist, please do engage with us. Uh, we do feel that the Bible teaches annihilationism or conditional immortality. Mm-hmm. The two go hand in hand. And just to clarify that position, we both believe everyone will be resurrected bodily mm-hmm. before the throne of God and face judgment. Just those who are righteous, their immortality is conditional on Jesus and the mm-hmm. wicked will be destroyed. And we think that's a better explanation of what the scripture teaches and if you disagree please engage please show us how and if you'd like to interact through this sort of format like uh joe and i have been doing uh then uh that's fine i'd 
love to talk to someone who's willing to engage in a bit of debate like I did with JD Martin on my channel which you can look at as well so uh, Joe th thank you so much uh, for being involved and oh, absolutely um, thank you for writing your book it's uh, something I am as I said still engaging with and uh, maybe once I've actually finished reading it we can have another interaction and I can give you some more uh, <laughs> direct questions about some of the things that you've written sure um, sounds great and I have put the link in the YouTube description so hopefully people will buy it I mean you have offered a free ebook um, mm -hmm. but I would love to encourage people to support you through uh, the small I think it was one pound <laughs> for, mm -hmm. for me to purchase your mm -hmm. book so um Please do uh, give a bit of money to to that. I think you've put so much effort in it. It's definitely worth uh, paying for. So I, mean, I won't stop you. Let's <laughs> see. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this time we need all all we can get, all the support we can get. So um, yeah, stay safe. Uh, so I'm going to wrap up the stream, and um, yeah, I hope that restaurants start getting their act together soon and, and you're able to uh, <laughs> get back into work uh, as oh, yeah. soon as possible um, great so uh, thank you so as I'm finishing up um, if you need more resources go to the help project online uh, dot online I'm going through revelation on there that sort of working document revelation chapter by chapter I will then make videos once I've uh, sort of sealed off each as a, as a script and um, going through Matthew with Darren Clark in a couple of weeks as well. So there's there's lots here. I think the whole idea is that it points you to a good foundation for seeing that God is a God who won't torment eternally. But ultimately, it's about Jesus' death and resurrection has paid the price for our death. And without Jesus, we would be dead. That's what this whole project's about. So again, just thank you for watching. Thank you to uh, Joe Deer, buy his book, engage in the content, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening, and I want to know what you think. Do get in touch. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, you can do that through uh, Twitter or my YouTube channel, but I also have the scripts and free resources and other studies that I'm continuing to engage with at uh, thehellproject.online. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support the channel and uh, the show in any way, please do go into the description of this episode and you can find a PayPal link. Otherwise, I do this all for free and I hope you found it helpful. God bless you. See you later.